listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. All right, all right, all right. That's my inner Matthew McConaughey here, uh, and Kent has got to be a fan. I think he's from Texas. I'm not sure. But welcome to Making Data Simple. I am joined by Kent Collins, who is a solutions architect at BSNF Railway. Uh, I just did a panel with Kent in Charlotte not too long ago. I guess it was June uh, at the IDUG International uh, DB2 User Group, North America. We talked about evolving technology, professional roles, business opportunities, and I will say I think it's the first time that I've been heckled on stage by the person <laughs> that's on stage. <laughs> that's Kent. Uh, <laughs> but it was fun. It was fun. That that What that did is keep it real, right? No, I love Kent. He's a data guy at the core, at least I think he is, and uh, we'll we'll talk about a whole bunch of things, but um, and I, you know, like I'm an AI guy as well, but it all starts with data. So... Let me give you one last lead in, and then I'll let you introduce yourself, Kent. Uh, I, I saw this on your LinkedIn page, and I think it def defines you well. You said, as we move into an era where data is an asset, I want to help companies discover new data pathways which add significant knowledge they can use to compete and win. So I think that describes you well, at least. And, and it's data. It's close to my heart. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So let me, you know, that was my introduction. I, like like I do as always, I'd like for you to introduce yourself. Tell us about what you do. Well, I'm Kent Collins. I uh, have been in this particular field uh, for many, many, many years. Uh, but I started in 1977 uh, working on wow. mainframes, IBM mainframes, uh, 158 and Started on working on the really, really large stuff when, you know, when the console was paper, and green bar paper, and you had to keep putting <laughs> it in and ran around as a tape monkey and mounting tapes all the time. So, You don't look like a day over 40, Kent. Oh, day over 40. okay. So checks in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've uh, been doing it a long time, but data, uh, having worked as a system administrator, having worked as a uh, uh, an architect, a job architect, having done uh, application support work, uh, worked for really, really large companies, a lot of them have had a chance to go pretty much work in all the disciplines in, in IT. Um, uh, started with DB2 in 1984, man. I, 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 I still remember my uh, my visits with Don Hatterley and sitting, I mean, uh, Mr. AI thinks that I was, I was a kind of off the board there a little bit in our in our first meeting at Ida. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Hatterley with that funny looking hat and sitting on the other end of the table and having dinner with me. I, I you know, I wanted to know when when Z was going to run on Windows platform and and I wanted to know all kinds of stuff when I was younger. So I, uh, I'm sure he was anxious to get back to his wife by the time dinner was over with. So you're always a troublemaker. Is that what we've established here? Hey man, when it comes to the big, big blue, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pusher, not a, not, <laughs> not a sitter. So yeah, I, I um, demand a lot, and uh, I haven't been too disappointed. So, so yeah, I, but my career goes way back. But I, I've been doing um, data work 
for a long, long time. Um, and we're, right now we're seeing some really interesting things take place in that arena. So I'm, I'm excited. Really excited. Fantastic. That's what we'll talk about. Here's what I love about Kent. There's no BS. You, you have a, a frank, open conversation, and that's exactly what we'll do today. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about some data, and typically we talk about data in, in the context of tech companies, banks, healthcare. Not always about rail transport, but uh, I think you've got a great story here. And the, the one thing I'll start off with that I think is an interesting story, since you know I think um, you've got an affiliation with Mr. Buffett. I'm sure you. You, you, you know, you know, maybe you get tired of hearing that, but um, you know, I'm not sure if you know he's done done pretty well in some of his inve- investments. But the one story that I've always liked about Buffett is like in the early '90s, Bill Gates invited him to his his summer home. I think it was over July 4th, and it's the first time they had met. And, and they sat down or whatever. I don't know how it went out, but uh, Gates said, "Hey, you've got to get a computer." And, and, and Buffett says, "Why? Why? Why do I need one of those?" He said, well, you can, you can keep track of your portfolio. And he says, well, I only own one stock, Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> he said, well, you can do your taxes. He said, you know, I don't have any income. Berkshire doesn't even pay a dividend. <laughs> and he goes, well, look, it's going to change everything. He goes, will it change whether people or how people will choose chew gum? He said, probably not. Well, then I'll stick to chewing gum and you stick to your computers. But the reason I tell that story is the irony is that every company is a tech company now, namely BSNF and Interkent Collins, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can't get away, get away from technology. So let's start right there. How do you use data at BNSF? Um, that's a great question. I mean, you have a 160-year-old company. So, wow. you know, over time... Yeah, you know, you you get people. I'll, I'll tell you something that I find extremely interesting. I've worked at a bunch of different Fortune uh, 100 companies, really, really large companies, and BNSF is the first one I've ever worked at where I saw more retirements in the first month in IT of my employment there than I had seen in 15 years of working in IT. Most people, you know, they work two years somewhere and leave, go somewhere else. You know, they're always looking for the next hot spot or, or the next project, and they just kind of float around. But the people at BNSF, they love BNSF. They love the railroad business. Uh, they love working together. They create a, uh, create a culture in which, um, you know, being being friends and being supportive is more important than completing a task. And uh, that's something I'll, I'll always cherish at BNSF. Um, wow. But, but but saying that, um, they, it sounds like you choked up a little bit there too, man. There must be a good culture. It, it is. I got a lot of good friends there, and I enjoy working there. Um, and they're good quality people that are that are there. One of the things I find interesting is, you know, when you got somebody that's been moving freight on the railroad and they're working in the field and they've been doing it for 25 or 30 years, they know better than the data. I mean, they know better than the data. No matter how much data you give them. Their gut instinct is more important to them than than whatever it says, whatever that number tells them, or whatever someone shows them in a in a set of analytics uh, charts. Uh, they still say, you know, no, I'm moving that train first, even though that train's going to cost me in the long run. I just know my gut tells me that train should go first. And moving that transitioning the culture of the company more toward letting the data reveal how uh, we should 
uh, review safety, how we should review velocity on the railroad, how we should view moving freight from coast to coast. That's a tough, tough, a tough lift. It takes uh, everybody. It takes time to transition. And one of the things we have in our in our corner now that we didn't have in the past is our workforce is aging. And when you're at your workforce is, is moving into the 58, 59 year age group, you realize that you're going to be replacing them with individuals that don't have that gut sense. They don't have that 35 years of knowledge that that train goes first. Mm-hmm. So if we don't get our knowledge base out of the heads of those that have been been moving freight into uh, reliable systems that can help these younger people know exactly how to run uh, freight across the railroad, then we're going to be, you know, we're going to be challenged. And uh, so that's our that's our challenge is to get that knowledge into systems that help people uh, make decisions on the operation of the railroad. So how are you going about doing that today? Well, um, we have several, you know, we have lots of projects that are going on. We've got some projects in which we're taking some 20, 25-year-olds uh, applications, and we're looking at, at how they can be improved, and we're looking at um, specific business functions on things like um, uh, what causes trains to be stopped and why do we stop them, and is there a way for us to use data to make better decisions about when they should be stopped Um we're always uh, safety focused as a company, so we're always looking at data and how to you know, make sure that when our people come into work in the morning, they go home the same way they, they came in to their families. Mm-hmm. So, because I mean, trains can be pretty unforgiving. Mm-hmm. They're, big, they're big beasts. So, um, so we're using data in that way. I mean, we, we spent probably three to four years uh, out with. Um, a vision focus, right? I mean, with uh, we had some initiatives in which uh, we wanted to make the data available to the business, so that the business could use that data to make decisions uh, ongoing as they're as they're looking at the data. And that that took us several years to get um, more access to data to the people that need to have it and be able to make those decisions. Now we're looking at, to be honest with you, data that a human being can't consume, right? I mean. I mean, you can't look at, at 15,000, 20,000 measurements and, and, and calculate it all in your head in real time and try to figure out what you should do. We, we've got to be able to provide decisions to them with with uh, good quantitative analysis and with uh, some level of confidence that we're telling them the right thing. So, so what kind of decisions um, – I know you're on this transformation, but what kind of decisions are you making from the day-to-day? Day-to-day. Um, so, uh, what some of the most of the structures and most of the things that we looked at are you know 20 years old. Most of the modeling techniques that are used are 20. Some of them 15, 20 years old. So we we need to look at how that data needs to be mapped to meet those business demands and business requirements going uh, forward in the future. We're looking at some things as you know should it be asset compliant? Should it not be asset compliant? Should it be should it be capped? Should it be you know is 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 near real time good enough for the data uh, for that decision um, you know what's the right vehicle to store that data Sh- should it be persistent should it not be persistent um, we're doing on edge computing which we we weren't doing in the, in the past and the reason is because the bulk of information is so high uh, these are uh, images that we're, we're dealing with we have to process them on the edge because there's not enough bandwidth to transmit them into a data center and a server and process them so 
we're doing a lot of on edge computing uh, and finding really good uh, results from that. Um, we're, we're trying to be innovative in, in, the, in the sense of uh, UAVs and, and other uh, forms of technology that we might use to help us observe the railroad and manage it. Um, we're looking at uh, building in-stream analytics into things like uh, track analysis and whether the track needs to be replaced or not replaced. So we, we're we always trying to look at ways to help us maintain and run the railroad in a more efficient manner. And uh, when you say, sounds great. I mean, when you say processing on the edge, what is the edge? What is the device in this case? Uh, uh, track side, uh, track side uh, uh, digital camera would be when and some oh, and so you're using. It. Well, then are you using uh, you know any AI with the visuals uh, to map yeah. visuals to be nice. Yep, yep, and that AI has helped us. Uh, some of the first numbers and some of the first values that we've seen, it, it's helped us with the ability to eliminate. I mean, we're, we're picking somewhere around 200 out of 200,000 or. Uh, something photos so we can go through them and we don't have to um, uh, keep those those photos uh, because they they show no interest and so we are keeping only what we need and, and and analyzing only what we need so trying to you know make sure that our equipment continues to operate and not fail in flight and not fail and, and cause any form of issue so we're always monitoring train traffic and we're always monitoring um, you know uh, train movements and and looking at the equipment individually com at the individual components to try to predict any form of failure that might occur. So, do you have no different than the airlines with uh, you know jet engines? Do you have um, IoT essentially sensors within the engines itself that are sent it back to uh, the data center for analysis? Yep, the locomotives have sensors. The cars have sensors. There's there's sensors on the track. Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, I'm not 100% sure of this statistic, but um, it's one that I heard years ago when I when I joined the railroad that we run the largest private network in the world. Mm -hmm. um, the United States government's the only one with a larger network, uh, so we have a lot of uh, uh, I don't know how many miles of track, but you know, in the four, close to 40,000 miles of track that we have to uh, monitor and. and um, Make sure that we're maintaining it properly and not, you know, uh, using our manpower and using our resources wisely. So, so one thing that's often the joke when you're you're flying now it depends on which uh, airline you're talking to. If you're talking to the the, the you know the software developers, etc., they'll say, look, the uh, the pilot's there for your just just for looks for your safety. The the plane will fly itself. <laughs> the same thing we're talking about when the locomotive. Uh, there they looked apart and they get in there and take a nap or what <laughs> no not, no, not quite yeah i wouldn't say that yet but uh yeah that's something that we're always uh, uh you know at least looking at but uh, no we our train crews are extremely important to the successful operation of a of a train so and so are our yard, yard people that manage and, and operate and process trains as they come in and out uh, we couldn't move anything without those without those folks yeah, I certainly wasn't diminishing that role in, age, in that comment. So, hey, uh, so give me the use case, though, on the visualization that you talked about uh, there. I mean, are you recording all, all tracks and then to identify, you know, tracks that need to re be replaced? Or, I mean, give me a couple of use cases that you use that for. 
So one of the one of the uh, successful projects that uh, I'm a part of, just one member of a large team, is um, uh, we try to uh, use uh, we call them geometry cars, but basically they're they're little small trains that collect an awful lot. They they collect 93 channels of data, 93 channels of information with regards to the track, mm-hmm. and they you know uh, traverse the track. 45, 50, 60 miles per hour, and they pick up these these metrics, and then we process these metrics in real time. So we we bring them into the center, we we process them, and we try to determine if uh, we've identified a defect that needs to be uh, analyzed further or needs to be reviewed. So we um, try to identify you know uh, cracks or or weak spots in, in track and. Uh, and then we'll make a decision about whether to do a site inspection or, or not do a site inspection. And they cover um, uh, this this track many several times per year. So um, right now, I, I believe we're we're running something in the ballpark of four or five, and we're hoping to expand that number to a larger number so we can cover the tracks uh, more frequently and and uh, get more data on the track. Do you have like ELA that you're up against to reduce the time that trains are stopped? Uh, I don't know. If, uh, you know that that type of information really isn't provided to me. I don't. I, I don't really know as far as you mean as far as schedule trains and things like that. Yeah, I mean just just you know like you always have like targets uptown time for you know I'm in the software business right. You talk about yeah. to, uh, uptown uptime etc. I don't know if you have something in the railroad business, but then again, I could understand if they don't make you aware of that because you don't want to, you know, you don't want the reap what you sow, so to speak. In other words, uh, you know, if the train needs to be stopped, you want it to be stopped. Uh, you don't want to encourage people not to do that when it needs to be done based on your safety focus, as you mentioned. But at the same time, I didn't know if there was objectives that you're trying to meet as you're creating these solutions. Well, well, definitely, uh, you know, you could say one rule, rule of thumb in, in building these solutions and, and consuming this new data is to improve the uh, the shipment velocity and the reliability of trains and and not have trains. I mean, the you know the worst thing for us is is to have to stop a train in transit, right? I mean, we want that train to move from point A to point B without having to be stopped and and have some piece of equipment uh, repaired. Ideally, it's sort of like your car, right? I mean, um, you, you you drive it to work, you bring it home, and you park it in the garage, and then the next morning when you get up, it, it won't crank. Well, that's an ideal place. I mean, if you're at work and it don't crank, it, it's a little more inconvenient. If you're in the middle of the road because you stop to pick up a burger, and <laughs> you get out and you, and you go to crank it and it won't crank, then you're in a lot of trouble. Um, so the same thing's true for, for a train, right? Uh, we want the equipment to be repaired when it needs to be repaired, not too soon, not too often, if it doesn't need it especially. And the last thing we want is for a, uh, a equipment failure to cause us a delay, a delay mm-hmm. in the shipment. So making our customers happy, getting the, the, the freight to the customers on, on time and on schedule, absolutely paramount to us and to our success. Are those trains, I mean, look, I know nothing about trains, um, maybe n- not as much as I should anyway. Are they running 24 by 7 for the most part? And then, uh, you know, scheduled downtime, you know, once a week, twice a week, every day? I mean, how does that work? They are. They they run they run all the time. They, they never stop. And um, 
there there are many many different types of trains so you know if you're sitting at a sitting at a railroad crossing and you see this train come by and you see all these containers that are stacked on the on like what looks like a flatbed you know and, and every one of those cars is that uh that you see and that's an intermodal train what we call an intermodal train so it's moving these uh you know boxes that get put on an 18 wheeler on a, on a tractor trailer and then haul to you know a, a, a distributor like a walmart or amazon or somebody right um so those are that's an intermodal and we have intermodal we have different kinds of yards we have uh, hump yards and we have mechanical yards a hump yard is a yard that uses inertia to um, to basically decompose a train and then recompose the trains uh, from that uh, set of cars so as trains come in they get processed they use inertia to disconnect the the cars from the train and to move them to inside tracks that are set aside for constructing the next train and there could be four or five trains being constructed, and then they're due out to leave the yard um, on schedule, and there's a crew assigned to them, and away they go moving out of the yard. And then we have mechanical ones in which there's actually a, uh, an equipment piece that actually moves the car in the yard from one location to another. So, um, yeah, I mean, and there's maintenance facilities. Like I said, some not all the facilities are, are have maintenance. So some of them do, some of them don't. So you really want to have you know, a uh, repair, you'd like to have that repair done when that car is in that yard so you don't have to ferry it there or or move it there. That's another expense that we would like to not have to have. Which which operation proves to be the most difficult? Do you have a viewpoint on that? Um, all the same. I, I'd say, you know, when I first joined BNSF, I remember having a conversation with someone who I, I work with every day. And I said, you know, to me, airline, the airline industry is orders of magnitude more complex than the railroad. Um, he quick. And they probably shut you down real quick, did they? <laughs> he really quickly um, uh, educated me. And, um, and 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 I and after the conversation, which took about an hour or so, I I, I have to agree with him. The railroad is extremely complex. Um, so as far as one area being more difficult than another, um, I'd say the most difficult task for us is to stay alert and aware, and like I said before, do our job as efficiently and effectively as we can with as much safety as we can. That's probably as difficult as any task that we actually try to undertake. You know, sometimes I'll be sitting at a light or whatever or, or a crossing, and I'll see the 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 train go by and there's a bunch of flatbeds, but there's nothing on them. And I can't help but think, Oh boy, that's gotta be, that's gotta irritate the hell out of somebody because something's messed up. Cause you know, you hardly ever see that. I mean, I got to believe that there's something messed up in the, uh, either it's going for maintenance. I don't know. You tell me, or it's, you know, something that messed up in the, the logistics by which, you know, they're doing a lag with nothing on the train. I don't know. Yeah, and we have a term that we call we call it haulage. It it has to do with the fact that, um, and you asked me a minute ago about the the most difficult task or most difficult thing to to solve in the railroad, and I'll tell you what it it really is. I, I, safety is extremely important because again it affects us all personally, but the key to being successful at moving freight in the railroad is equipment placement, right? So if all of your equipment are 
next to the Mississippi River, and you've got um, hundred thousand shipments coming in to uh, a California port. Those, the cost of move all that equipment to the point of of impact, which is the 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 shipments coming in on, on the port, is extremely costly. Now you got to move all of that. So getting uh, locomotives in the right location, getting equipment, uh, cars in the right location, getting um, uh, the stuff that you need to move things around in the yard, making sure that the uh, the maintenance facilities aren't having to uh, have equipment sit waiting because you can't get to them because you're running three shifts already for repair. You need to be sure that um, that the resources that you need to move uh, the freight is where you really need it. So then all you have to do is just move it a little distance, and there it is. It's ready to go. And that, that reduces your cost and makes it more efficient. Now i got to believe you're talking to some of that complexity that you got educated on for over, for over an hour. Hey, um, all right, so some of the decisions that you're being made, uh, you're looking at uh, you've got uh, IoT devices essentially uh, reporting back on, you know, engine trouble, engine issues. You've got you're looking at uh, track that needs to be repaired or replaced. What what other kind of decisions? Um, a wear and tear analysis is on on cars, right? I mean, mm -hmm. cars tend to you know if, if think of it this way: if you if if you've got um, several tons of of um, uh, merchandise that you're moving in a car, and if that car loaded always goes in the same direction, well track it isn't straight right track curves well you can imagine if you've got a train traveling at say 50 miles per hour as it goes around a curve the I mean, which wheels do you think are going to have the most force <laughs> so yeah. you know again you, you, it's trying to get the the most mileage that we can out of the equipment uh, before we have to start uh, making repairs to them and that basically means, uh, back to what I'd said before, uh, where is the equipment placed? Uh, what is it going to take to to get it where you need it? And um, how many miles has it traveled um, since it was last reviewed for repair? Uh, how much weight has it carried? Um, how many miles has it traveled empty? Uh, because even traveling empty can be um, uh, dangerous to, not dangerous, but can have a higher impact to certain areas of the car. Than mm -hmm. say if it was fully loaded. Um, so, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, all those things are. Uh, so we're, we're we're constantly looking at the cars. I mean, think of it this way too. And this is something that's interesting because I found it interesting when I when I joined with the railroad. Think of breaking a train, stopping it, trying to bring it to mm -hmm. a stop. So it's traveling at at 50 or 60 miles per hour, and now you've got to bring it to a stop. Well. Probably wouldn't be good to have some cars stop rapidly and other cars stop slowly. <laughs> it would it would be nice for there to be uniformity, right? Well, that's that's handled uh -huh. through the equipment. The equipment is is applying the brakes to the cars in a in a uniform manner. So, one of the groups that I work with, a really 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 strong technical group that I'm extremely proud of, they um, they monitor moving trains and. Uh, and they do it in real time, and so we process about uh, somewhere by around 90 million uh, to 100 million uh, rows of data per day. So uh, when you see it, uh, one of the, for example, one of the analyses that that um, this group was able to do 
which was uh, about a, uh, an hour or so, maybe even two hours to accomplish by humans, is to determine whether it's, it's possible that a brake may not be working for a particular wheel. So, for example, um, you've got a train, it's braking, it's going down an incline, and it's braking. And they have the ability using uh, temperature to determine if maybe um, some of the brakes are applying completely and some of the brakes are not complying, uh, not, mm -hmm. not actually applying. We actually call it cold wheel, but basically it's the ability to determine if maybe we need to, to replace and or investigate the brake for that wheel. So what we used to do is, is we used to just stop it and, and go look at every single solitary one of them. Well, that can take, like I said, the train stopped. It can take a long time to site inspect every one of them and now we we're working on some some uh, data processing that allows us to let some trains go through because they're not having any issues and and stop other trains that that seem to be um, something that needs to be investigated so uh, again we're, we're heavily focused right now from an initiative perspective on trying to address um, situations in which today we physically stop a train and 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 we mm -hmm. want we want to have the data to be able to know whether that was a, a good decision or, or not a good decision, and how to help the folks making those decisions be able to be um, feel safer about their decision that they make. So again, another case of uh, sensors uh, on the train in multiple ways. In this case, heat sensor, I presume, among others, on the uh, on the brakes themselves. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we, you know, I talked about this earlier uh, about the fact that, you know, when you've got someone and, and been working for the railroad for 40 years, I mean, we've got people 50 years plus that have been working for the railroad. So if somebody has been working for the railroad for a long time, they have a really good sense of what needs to be done. They've done it so often. Um, mm -hmm. but we have human characteristics too, right? Decision making isn't void of whether I'm a risk taker or I'm not a risk taker, that kind of thing. So what you end up happening sometimes is, is you end up with decisions that get made, and a different decision is made by one individual because they're not a risk taker. So they they might be more prone to stop trains than, say, someone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, the data helps us to identify and normalize that. So when we start to provide them good, clean data so that they can make these decisions, we start to see those two come closer together. So now we're making stop decisions, not just you know, not just based on our our premonition or our our, our lack of willingness to take risk, but on hard data, hard information. So that, that's go ahead. Sorry, it it just helps us. It helps us to just just helps us to do it with some. Um, and, and you know, people do this, right? We, you and I do this. I mean, if we if we if we go outside to to work in the yard or do something, and all we have is a weed eater, we may be out there uh, trying to mow our backyard with a weed eater because our lawnmower is broke. Well, the same thing's true for people. If you only give them um, a train, and you only give them the information from the crew, and you only give them certain pieces of information, and that's what they have to make a decision on, they may be more prone to to stop the train than they would if they had more more data to deal with, more more information to, to analyze. So we want to give my grandmother I saw my grandmother weed eating with scissors one time. But that's that's a whole different story. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so 
That's very interesting that uh, you say that because I can imagine you got a guy that's 50 years, guy or gal that's 50 years into the role, and there comes Kent, Mr. Computer Science, going to tell me what to do uh, when I know much better than him. So, uh, but then if you, if it's presented in such a way that you know, look, this is complementary to your position, just to help you make that that decision, you know, take this fact here. You may turn the risky guy that I mean, they're the yeah, the risky guy maybe get a little bit more conservative as he should, and and the overconservative gals may say, you know what, uh, you know, we may we may be fine here given the metrics that I'm seeing that Kent's providing. Yeah, and we we're starting to see that. You know, we, we, there was some resistance, you know, early on, and um, but when we start to bring them into the decision making and into the fold to to do the work and, and educate them on how it's actually done and what information we're looking at and and all that, then then now they're they they've got skin in the game and they 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 actually become way more uh, supportive than you might would even realize when you engage them early and you you say no you know this is not uh, quote unquote you know we're not replacing uh, anybody we're simply providing the the information that you need to be able to make a, a better decision. Um, and we want to provide you whatever that is. And you can tell us what that is. And we want to be able to provide it to you. So so in terms of the products, it seems like you're using the full suite of products, uh, mainframe and distributed both, I presume? We've been a mainframe shop for a long time. And yep, we, we're a big mainframe shop still. And we have distributed. Yes, indeed. We have a lot of distributed. Yeah. Where do you make the distinction of when to use the mainframe and when to use uh, distributed? Well, Depending on um, use case. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of it is use case based, right? Uh, are the are the consumers of that of that data mostly uh, currently mainframe apps? And if they are, then why would I try to move the data away from them? I, I just create it right there. If most of the the systems that are um, consuming that data are are off mainframe, then maybe we would look at um, putting it it off. Um, Sadly, sadly enough, and, and, and of course, it's just something that's always true um, in, in everything that we do. Cost is a factor, and we look at it from a cost perspective. So we're, we're always analyzing our decisions um, based on cost, and we want to provide the, the, the most solid solution we can with uh, the lowest cost that we can. So um, we're, we're always analyzing that and reviewing it, and uh, some of the decisions are made on that, on that basis as well. So as you move your way up the stack, you got data, then I presume you've got uh, a suite of unified governance, whether it's ETL, data movement, whatever, uh, tools just as well. Yep, so we've got the structured, and we've got the semi-structured, and we've got the no-structured data. <laughs> um, we got all of that, and we we have a governance team that do a tremendous job um, in very difficult circumstances, right? Because I mean, when was the last time you met a developer who had a timetable given to them and they were really interested in giving anything to a data governance? I mean, I mean, they're they're more interested in just delivering that functionality, baby, and moving on to the next thing. And they see you in many cases as being a, an instrument of obstruction as opposed to an inter, uh, a valued uh, member of the team. But uh, th that's changing too. Uh, we're able to to change that a little bit, but. I'll, I'll be honest with you, that's a, where I'm currently sitting and where I'm at um, in the organization I work in, that's an extremely difficult task. Um, hmm. 
for whatever reasons, data modelers and, and governance folks uh, seem to always have to give a reason for why they exist and, and, and what it is they're doing. And then on the top of that, now you've got DVAs that are experts in data. They seem to, again, uh, you know, have to justify why they exist and, and what they're trying to do for the organization and why they're about the member. You know, I, if you if you just looked at a piece of data versus a piece of code, like I was saying before, I, I was talking to Lim before we started talking, and I find it interesting that I'm, in some cases I'm looking at data that's the same age as the development team I'm working with. In other words, the developers are in their 20s and the data is 20 years old. Um, so um, that data is just as valid structurally and from a governance perspective now as it was 20 years ago. Now, it may not be organized properly uh, for some of the new features and functions that we need to be able to develop. And its value to the organization may not be as, as, as much as it was when it was first created. Because data, data has a life cycle, right? When it's created, it has a value, and like birth. And when it comes out in its birth, it ha it's hot. And it moves through like a temperature profile from hot. When you start talking about predictive analytics and you're talking about real-time actionable analytics, as, as it moves further and further away from the event of its creation, it, it, it can become less valuable. Then it, but then it moves into a, a valued state, uh, kind of like my grand, like your grandmother and my grandmother. It moves into a valued state in which now you get these gems of, of real uh, life-changing um, information from them. But you may have to sit and listen to them tell you the same story 28 times because they can't remember that they said it. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out how to get that data into the hands of analysts who are analyzing, you know, 10 hours a day and trying to determine how that can be leveraged to make real-time decisions um, and, and do it in a, in a cost-effective manner, right? I mean, uh, you know, everybody ran to Hadoop, and Hadoop was the, you know, the thing, and everybody ran there. And then, you know, we, we're seeing um, things now where people are saying, well, it's just difficult for me to to get what I need done in that particular um, layout, the way it's laid out. I, I need a different layout. I need it done a different way. It doesn't mean that Hadoop was the, the wrong uh, solution. It just means it was the wrong solution for that particular function that this person's trying to solve, this particular riddle that this person's trying to solve. And um, mm -hmm. so that's our goal and that's our job. I, I heard something from, uh, and I was, I knew I was gonna get to talk to you today, so I kind of did some research. So. Oh. I, I I remember um, about uh, four years ago, maybe, or maybe five, I guess it could have been a little bit longer than that, at a, at a World of Watson conference. I remember Jeff Jonas talking at a conference. He's still around, yeah. Yeah, and he talks about, he talked about something and it just fascinated me. He talked about, and I'm using a different term than he used. He used the term contextual. I'm going to use the term self-aware. Mm-hmm. If you could have data be self-aware, it knows where – he used a puzzle piece, I think. He talked about puzzles, and he talked about how this piece of information comes in, and it knows where it fits in the overall puzzle. And it fits itself in there, and, and it, it communicates with all the other data around it and all the other information around it. And it makes sure that it stays valid and it stays um, reliable, and it, and it does all that. I really think that's, that's, that's out there, way out there. But I really mm -hmm. think that's where 
we need to go and eventually mm-hmm. be. You know, because we talk about structured. What does that mean? Well, I can structure the data after it's in production. That can be really difficult to do. I can structure it before I have requirements. That's almost impossible. I can I can I can structure it as I get requirements, but then I've got to make major changes to it, which may make cause outages as I'm delivering. I have semi-structured, but semi-structured loses a lot of value um, very very quickly. And then no structure. I'm like the founder of the internet. I believe no structure isn't even data. I believe it's just information. <laughs> so, you know, considering what you do with with information and, and when that information fits into the puzzle and when it doesn't, what to floor, what to keep, what to move uh, through the data life cycle and, and keep and continue to draw uh, valuable insights out of. That's where we we ha- we struggle, man. Uh, we it's just difficult. Mm-hmm. It's um, and, 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 I get and, and, and you know that stuff that we started a few years ago. I mean, BNSF was waterfall until not too long ago. You know, waterfall mm-hmm. development. Well, Agile's been around a long, long time, and so has Scrum. It's been around for a long, long time. But those things, if you stay in that for very long, it changes the way your mind works. Because now, the longest thing that you can develop is an epic, and if an epic takes you more than two weeks to deliver, people are freaking out. Well, data issues and and things that you're trying to solve with data. You can't do them overnight. You can't, you can't just do it quickly. It, it, in some cases, it takes a, a lot of effort, but the value can be unbelievable. But, but it takes a lot of time. It takes effort, and you don't just get in, instantly gratified uh, because you may have to do a lot of building, a lot of uh, uh, resettling. You may have to do a, an awful lot of remapping. You may have to throw some things away and go in a different direction. You may have to pull pieces from all kinds of different sources that have, no, you know, have very difficult ways of putting that data together and making any sense out of it. And uh, it's 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 worth it, but it, but getting, you know, people to uh, it, to say, okay, yeah, you can you can spend X Y Z dollars over here, and you may not see anything for it for the next several years. When they come out of that Scrum methodology, they're like, "Okay, I'm paying you X, Y, Z dollars, and I expect to see results in two weeks." It, it just mm-hmm. it just doesn't work like that. Well, for the listeners, what who Kent is referring to is Jeff Jonas. We have had him on the podcast uh, in um, you know sometime sometime before, and uh, he is with Sensing, and you know the term that I use is typically entity resolution. But to your point, there's no question that. Uh, Data is certainly the new oil, but the better you're able to extract it, cleanse it, have one source of the truth, and the faster you're able to do that, uh, the, the, the more you're going to win, right? That's why we often say there's no AI without IA, information uh, architecture, uh, because you got to get that right. But one more question, and then I've got, I want to go through a quick lightning round to finish up, and that's just where we get to learn a little bit about Kent. It's a very popular uh, a set of questions, if you will. People used to stay around for this. But anything that we missed that you'd like, yeah, so I'm going to have some fun with you, man. So anything that we missed or, um, you know, where can people find what you're working on? Is LinkedIn the best place to get in contact with you if they hear something and want to ask some questions? Well, 
that's another thing. You know, we we try to keep things that the uh, that we're working on at the railroad, especially. We try to keep it pretty close to the best. So I, mm-hmm. I don't really publish much out there. Now um, I do have a blog that I work on a, a website where we Enterprise DB2 where we we post a lot of DB2 uh, tips and things like that for uh, uh, for DB2 DBAs and and uh, helpful things that they can they can use. Um, so I, I would say that place, LinkedIn, if I'm going to say something out there with regards to today, that's probably where I'm going to say it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, what's, the inter, what's the DB2 Tips blog or location? Uh, enterprise, uh, DB, EnterpriseDB2.com. EnterpriseDB2.com. All right, got it. We'll put it in the show notes. And, uh, All right, any others? Uh, well, you, can, you can always buy one of the books. On, on DB2, either 11.1 or 10.1, Sure, you can yeah. buy one of those. It'll get a lot of information in it. Um, we're, work, we're working on an advanced, um, what I would call an advanced topic, uh, DB2 DBA for DB2 DBAs uh, for DB2 for 11.5. And at IDUG next year, we're going to teach uh, an advanced, uh, advanced only topic. So we're going to teach um, uh, blue and pure scale. Um, uh, advanced topics at NI Doug. So, if you're really into answers, and I, I want to tell you this, uh, I'm extremely excited about Blue. I uh, we've been using it for years. Uh, of course, I'm an evangelist for PureScale. I, 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 mm-hmm. shouldn't say, I shouldn't say that I think more highly of Blue than I do PureScale. I don't, but I, I really like PureScale. Um, I like the cluster. I like the savings that we have for running a shared uh, resource like uh, a PureScale cluster. I like the ability to to be able to um, quickly and easily scale and uh, not have to buy way up front. I can buy as I go. I can plug in uh, members and, and continue to expand my, my, my compute capacity for DB2. Um, I like the, the folks that are developing it and working on it. They're some, some of the smartest people in the industry. And, um, and I'm talking about Kerry and I'm talking about uh, Lamb. I'm talking about the whole team up there. Yeah. Um, and uh, and but blue, I, I, I'm telling you, man, I, I've got I got a 7.4 billion row table. I've got it's moving, it's got, it's moving toward 10 by the time um, by the end of this year, by the first of next year, it'll be probably closer to 15 or 20 billion with a B. I'm an old DBA man. I, I I used to I used to have this fight all the time with people like uh, Akira on the mainframe. He said, you know, if you've got something in memory and it's been sitting there longer than four four uh, nanoseconds, it's been there too long. And uh, now we pin everything in the world in memory, and we um, and, and I can't believe I'm dealing with a 20 billion row table in a in what I would what I would call a transactional based system. It's got a UI in front of it. They want subsecond response time on this UI. So when I tell you. You can have a many, many billion row table in blue, and from a UI, you can get sub-second response time. You try that with some other technology, and you can compress the ever-loving crap out of it. Um, and now with indexing um, and, and some new ingest stuff coming down the pike later on that IBM is developing now, it's, it's going to be it's going to be the place to be. So. Man, that's a that's a fantastic. I couldn't have said it any better. Thank you for that. That makes up for the ribbing that I got on the on stage right there. <laughs> well, let's don't bring up ADE, okay? Let's, yeah. Let's stay off of ADE for now. 
But uh, what Kent refers to for those listeners, Blue is an in-memory columnar store, and PureScale is a high availability cluster uh, for DB2. Well, thank you very much. Hey, I got to get the lightning round in. All right, All right. ready? I'll just throw these out. You can riddle off questions. All right. Okay. You said you play ball in ball. You said you play ball in college. What position you play? I played left field. Left field. Was it college? I, you didn't say college. I. I but you played yeah. ball. It was college. Left field. Where'd you left. play it? Mississippi College. Mississippi Clinton, College. Mississippi. Left field. What was, your, what was your batting average? Oh Lord, I have no idea. Well, you should make it up. Say it's like 380 or something. Oh, see, it's uh, 397. Hey, baby, and I had 28 home runs. Yeah, no, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't that impressive. So left field, uh, great. That's it. And and didn't have didn't do any minor league, huh? No, my dad played pro ball. My dad had a 277 batting average. Played eight years in the pros. Um, uh, one season he was eight and one pitching. Um, he played every position in the pros except one. He di- he didn't play catcher. Uh, I didn't know that. What's your dad's name? Players. Bobby Collins. Oh. And he signed right out of high school. Five hundred dollar signing bonus, and then he got five thousand for making the the double A farm club. Nice. How many years did he play? He played eight years. Eight years. That's a good yeah. career. That's a good well, career for. Uh, with the Korean War in the middle, so he spent he spent uh, twenty four twenty two months in the, in Korea. So unfortunately, that's when they didn't make quite the amount of money they make today, like a four hundred million dollars signing <laughs> bonus for Trout or signing for Trout. Yeah. So al- alcoholic beverage of choice. Uh oh, uh, Drambuie. What the hell? <laughs> I expected from you like a Budweiser or something. No, I'm not a, and I'm not a, I'm not a big drinker. I don't, yeah. I mean, when I go to conferences every now and then I'll, you know, have some wine or whatever, but I'm not a, I'm not a big alcohol consumer, but, uh, um, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to, uh, to Dram Bowie a few years ago as a, as, as reading a book and, and sipping. And so, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a special family recipe, believe it or not. And I think it's uh, unknown, but, uh, it, it, it tastes good. It's real, real sweet. I have to look that up, man. That's, that's a new one on me. All right, so what are you most proud of? My children and my wife. That's an easy one, right? Yeah. Uh, tell me, um, here, here's a good one. This is just for you. Tell me what's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. <laughs> wow. Tell me something. Um Tell me something that's true. That, that, that DB2 is the fastest database in the world. Nobody agrees. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a little bit of a favoritism there. But but yeah. in the general crowd, um, okay. and, and I've got some guys that are ACEs with Oracle Corporation. And, so, and by the way, we used to sit side by side and, and, and when I was working at I2 Technologies, and that's all I did was TPC benchmarks. And I beat his butt every time, every single solitary time. Love it. I love yeah. it. We're keeping that one in. All right, fantastic. Um, if we were to finish the interview, you step outside, you find a lottery ticket, you got $10 million, what are you going to do? Uh, I'm going to cash it in and go to work tomorrow just like I always have. Really? You can still go to work? Same thing, no changes? I, w- I won't change nothing immediately. I might change something in a year or two maybe. I might look at it. Usually when I when you do things uh, the spur of the moment and you do them uh, 
uh, without thinking, it, it, a lot of times it don't come out very well. So I would I would process it very well. I probably give most of it to charity. I probably I think about it a lot and how I could use it. And yeah, fantastic. So what do you do in your free time? What do you work towards? Oh, I hang out at the lake with my wife. Uh, I look at one day buying a boat. I've never owned a boat. Look at buying a boat one day and getting just cruising around at night, uh, watching the sunset on the lake. Um, I play with my two grand grandkids um, uh, as much as I possibly can. But to be straight up and honest with you, I work 85 hours a week. I I love everything about technology. So I I write um, uh, Apple um, uh, apps. I write um, Android apps. I, I'm working on a, a Java website right now. I I like to look at um, different Java frameworks. I try to stay as as relevant as I can, and I try to stay as up to date. Um, I'm, I'm I probably I probably looked at 54 different database technologies. Uh, I consider myself, you know, I, I get accused, even at BNSF, all the time of of working for IBM. I have. I want to. I want to tell you something, Al. I have never ever worked for IBM. I've never taken a penny from IBM. I've never worked for IBM. I've never um, been employed by IBM. But if if someone wants to try to discredit me at my current employer, that's one of the very first things they say. Well, don't go talk to that guy because he 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 bleeds blue. The truth of the matter is, I'll I'll tell well, like you, you more and more. I'll, I'll 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 tell you point blank. If I find something wrong with a technology, it doesn't matter who the vendor is. I will point blank point it out and talk about it. I'm a technologist. I hey, I'm a testament to that. I know that. Even on stage at a conference, you would say something. <laughs> I know it. But I but I believe this, right? I think we should all be that. We should all look at the technologies. We should understand them. We should understand how they work. And if they're architected correctly, then then we know we can work with the vendor to to make it to where it works for us. But if it's bad technology, if it's architected wrong, it's going to eventually hit some snag that it's not going to be able to go beyond. So, uh, and, and most of the stuff that I see with IBM, I'm not crazy about all the name changes. I mean, IBM gets a lot of rub for Infosphere and uh, Tivoli and changing the names of every freaking thing. Uh, even my favorite thing is DB2 with a lower lower D now. Lower uh, B. Yeah, B, yeah. But, you know, and, and I will say this. I remember under Janet Perna, man, we used to go after these other vendors, uh, the vendor that starts with an O and, and, and the vendor that starts with an M and some of the rest of these uh, vendors. We used to go after them, man. You want to say this publicly? I can prove you wrong. I can prove you wrong. In, in, in no time I can prove you wrong. And I kind of had this conversation not too long ago with someone at BNSF who will remain nameless. I, and he challenged me, and so I'm, I'm actually going to do this uh, in the next week or so. I told him I he could take uh, Cassandra as an example, and he could build whatever he wants to build in Cassandra, and he could try to ingest data as fast as he could possibly ingest it on the same platform. I'll take DB2, I'll put it on that exact same platform, and I will I will meet or beat whatever his ingest rate is. All right, you're going to have to tell me the results of that so we can post it on the podcast after uh, after you complete it. Okay, I'll do that. Fantastic. Because they, they, they take the, that's what we have, right? The, the the minefield that we live in right now. If you named a piece of software or you named a, a vendor, 
um, I'd probably say well, that one's a bit, that that company's been here at BNSF, or we run something from them at BNSF today. Mm-hmm. We have it. I mean, we it, it, that's the problem, right? There's what 84 database technologies out there with you know 0.33 percent of the market or whatever. There's all these you know. I, I, just before I came on with you, I had like I looked at my email. I had six or seven emails, and every one of them start out with, "Have you thought about this?" and and we're the number one company in the world that does this, and you need this, and if you don't do this, you won't be complete. You know, and I'm like, come on, man, give me a break. <laughs> it, it's a it's a minefield out there, you know, a huge huge minefield, and people are probably uh, investing hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and getting absolutely no results in some cases. Um, so picking the right technology. And picking the right company couldn't be more important today. It couldn't be more important today. It's it's a big with all this. So yeah, I agree. Thank you for that. Um, that's one reason I'm still here at IBM, to be honest with you. But let's. Um, how do you, you you do all these Google apps? You do Android apps or, or Apple apps? How, how do you learn? I mean, how do you find all that time to, to learn? And, and is there a secret to your learning? Any cheats that you have? Because there's so much stuff out there. How do you get right to the point and, and are able to advance your knowledge so quickly? So read, uh, ask questions, talk to people who, who do it for a living already. Uh, stay socially aware, you know, with people who are, are writing apps today. Um, listen to blogs, look at blogs, listen to podcasts like yours. Uh I mean, you can't. There is so much stuff out there. Give me a. I think I could do open heart surgery next week if I, <laughs> if I just spend enough time. You know, being a little facetious here, but but my but but there's so much information out there that if you're if you're um, hurting for information or you're starving for information, then I think you, I think you got much much bigger problems than you need probably to, <laughs> to see a, psych, right. a, 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 a psychiatrist right. or something. Because there we we. There's just so much stuff out there. Now, figuring out which ones are right versus that's which wrong. ones are wrong and all that, yeah. that's a different issue. But, I mean, I could I could go out there tomorrow and Google, and and, and, and I did this not too long ago. So I had this, I had this uh, customer that wanted to be able for, to read a barcode from the phone and put it on their website. So I go out there and look, and not only do I find two or three people already doing it, but I also find code that they're willing to give me to for, for, me, to, for me to do it also. So, I mean – you you can do you can have done nothing in your uh, in this area, but you can become pretty knowledgeable quickly. And um, I, I want to encourage people. You know, don't worry about um, uh, looking funny or whatever. If if it's something you want to do and and it's something that you think would be fun and exciting and technology, go do it. If you fail, get back up and do it again. I mean, come on. You know, I, I think. <laughs> well, I think last I, question. Go ahead. Go ahead. You think what? You think what? I I, I was watching the uh, uh, Jeff. We talked about Jeff Jonas earlier. I actually uh, yep. somebody was interviewing him, and one of the first things she asked him one of those questions, lightning round things like you just said. He said, "Well, what most people don't know is my first company I bankrupt." So I mean, I mean that's what I'm saying, right? People who are successful or who are out there on the edge and they're trying to do something new and be, and, and do something something different, they're going to fail. I mean you. You find me somebody that's never failed in data, and I find you somebody that ain't doing nothing, and you shouldn't pay them. I, I don't disagree. I mean, failure, a lot of people don't like to hear this, or um, 
you know, I, I said that to somebody the other day, and they said, eh, no, you know, everybody says that, but it's not true. I said, it's absolutely true. Failure, failure leads to success. That's the bottom line. You can maybe fail fast. I get, I get, I get that, but you got to fail. Hey, so what's the last question, man? What's next for you? What's, what's, what's next on the horizon? Um, another book, eleven five book. I was, we were just talking about that. We're doing an advanced book. We're writing, working on that now. Um, Good. we're going to do some comparison studies of DBMSs. Uh, yeah. we're going to start with Cassandra and DB2. Going to do that uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to oh, yeah. finish that, finish yeah. that data pipeline by the end of July, or at least the initial framework for it. Um, so, uh, that's what I like about. As a matter of fact, I thought about this. I thought about this, Al, because you asked me this on stage, and I you said, "What do you do for a living?" It's so hard to describe. But what I was going to say is, is like today, right? I walked into the building, and 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 SAP had crashed. So that was the first notice I received. So I got that one, and so I was talking to somebody, say, "Okay, well, when did this happen?" And then I'm writing a, a store procedure for a DevOps function. So I'm writing that, and then. Somebody wanted to have a, a view written to extract some data, and they didn't know how to write it. And they wanted to know if I would be willing to write it for them, and I said sure. So they sent that to me. And then I did seven or eight GIS requests where I was creating spatial objects for uh, four or five different groups within the within the railroad. And then the manager wanted to talk to me about a deployment that had taken place and how they could streamline the deployment. And so I went into a meeting with him and talked about that. And I never know from moment to moment, what's going to be coming. Um, I turn my monitor on and my laptop on, and I might have six or seven Skype conversations going on at the exact same time where everybody's asking, where is this data, or, or, or how would you do this, or how could you do that? I absolutely love that. I love problem solving, and I love creating something brands making new. So, so the, the prob my problem with that is in IT, those are two different areas usually. If you're a great problem solver and you love creating something brand new, you're in to two totally different departments because that's just the way it works. And I say, no, I don't want that. I want to be in one, and I want to do both, and I want to do them both. I mean, if something critical is, is causing trains to stop, I want you to be the first one called so that I can do root cause analysis. And if I was telling young people out there listening to your podcast, something you cannot learn from the Internet and no one can ever teach you, it's how to do root cause analysis. The only way you can do it is to do it. No Hands-on experience. Yep. yep. All right, my friend. Uh, you are a champion. I appreciate you uh, being with us today. I know that there's going to the folks that are listening are going to take a ton from from this podcast. Always, uh, you know, we, I feel like we could just, you know, I know you don't drink a beer, but I'll drink for you. And, uh, and <laughs> oh, now we, wait a minute, I didn't say I wouldn't drink a beer. Oh, okay, I just, okay. I just don't do that very often, but yeah. Well, we can continue on forever. So uh, uh, thank you so much. I mean, that that's a sign of a, a great. Um, interviewee. So thank you, Kent. I appreciate everything you bring to the table here. You're a good partner, certainly for IBM, but just a good partner overall. So thank you. I appreciate it. We'll put some of your contact information that you're willing to share in the show notes and the blog or yeah, the blog as well. Thank you so much. And um, anything else? I'll give you the last word. I, I love talking with you, Al, and, and uh, appreciate you inviting me. It was a, really a privilege. All right. Thank you so much. For everybody out there, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. 
sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out. Oh,